0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, We're going to dig right into the scriptures today. We're looking at Ephesians, continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. And today we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. And I'm just going to read it. It's kind of a long portion, but just take it in. It says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that it might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that it might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So yeah, I'm not going to try to cover all of this in one uh, sermon. I'm definitely going to talk about it next week. I think Today, we'll just focus on husbands and wives. Next week, we'll talk about this profound mystery of the relationship between the church and God. Uh, So, and maybe we'll even go a third. We'll see, because there's so much to really talk about with this. Um, Just out of curiosity, I did some research on marriage and divorce rates when more traditional husband and wife roles were embraced in our country. A very high percentage of people I found got married from the Jane Austen era, about 1800, to the Leave it to Beaver era of the 1950s. One staff, I thought was interesting, said that in 1950, there were 2.5 divorces per 1,000 people. Divorces happened, but they were not common. Society frowned on them. The sexual revolution of the late 1960s spun the nation into a gradual downward spiral of marriage and family breakdown. But it was still slow. You know, I remember growing up in the, the 1970s and 80s, being in high school in the early 80s, And I can say it was extremely rare to find my peers with parents who were divorced. It just wasn't a thing. It wasn't common. It happened, but it it wasn't common at all. But then when our daughters uh, were in school over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, we noticed a very high percentage of their peers had divorced parents. Uh, Some say that more than... 50% of marriages will end in divorce, and percentages aren't much better amongst Christians. This probably isn't new information, but I think it's just interesting to kind of keep in mind as we go into this teaching, because it's clear that society's enlightened, progressive views of marriage that have evolved in the last 50 years are not resulting in strong, lasting, fulfilling marriages. There are a lot of factors that contribute to the breakdown of marriage and family, but I believe at the root, the problem is this, a disregard of the design of God. The very purpose of marriage has been systematically just dismantled through the years by culture. Uh, Most people get married because they believe it will make them happy. This idea of marriage is reinforced every single day in our society, especially by Hollywood and popular movies and TV shows and all that. People have such strong feelings about this purpose of marriage that it is now even encouraged that if someone isn't happy in their marriage, they should just get out, just end it. And many movies, of course, portray a drab marriage relationship. You've probably seen a movie, or two, or three, or 50, like this. But then the wife meets a man who is nice and kind and interesting, but not her husband. And the writers of the movie manipulate you emotionally to dislike the boring, grumpy husband and to want the wife to dump him and go with this this other dream person. And why? Well, because she'll be happy. Happiness is always the the primary objective. But the purpose of marriage as defined in the word of God isn't happiness. The purpose is to glorify God in a mutual love relationship. The marriage is to be such that it points people to the relationship between God and his people. Well, in the passage I read a few minutes ago from Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, uh, the apostle exhorts the wives to submit to their husbands. He makes a statement, I'll read it again. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. (laughs) I was thinking about this. If we put this verse on our next mural, on the outside of the building, I wonder what would happen. <laughs> would there be you know, angry protesters? Would, uh, would the building be burned down? I don't, I don't know. It would, it would certainly cause a rustle in the city. Wives submitting to husbands is an idea that is bristled at in our society, especially by progressive types who consider the idea the antithesis of female empowerment. Now, why people react against this verse is complex. It's multi-layered. One reason, big reason, is the use of the Bible by men to dominate their wives through history. Some husbands have even used verses like these that I read to justify physical abuse toward their wives because of course, you know, Jesus disciplines his church. You can't blame people for reacting against the idea of wives submitting. Another reason for the reaction against the idea of wives submitting is that Christians have not really in recent years done a good job of showing the world the beautifulness of Christian marriage and husbands and wives living out their God-designed roles in love. They just haven't seen how it's a beautiful thing. It's either Christians nowadays usually swing one way or the other. They just no we throw out the roles altogether. There is no God design. We cut uh, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 out of the Bible, or we go the other way. And, and it's just this dominant, you know, the husband is the head and he's ruling over the And she's just the little mouse that just does everything he wants her to do. There's a middle ground. I think, you know, both uh, groups are missing the scriptures. But I think this is a reason why uh, people kind of bristle at this idea. In addition to this, if a person is not a Christian, he or she really has no understanding of the relationship between Christ and the church. Um, They don't submit to God. They don't perceive submission as a good and beautiful thing. Consider these verses. Uh, This is from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 8 says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I think people, uh, if they don't understand the kingdom of God and the ways of God, they're certainly not going to understand the design of God for marriage. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, the hearts of all people became darkened. And in varying degrees, insist on one thing. This is kind of the heart of sin. They want to rule themselves. In America, this sin of pride, because that's what it is, pride is very developed. America, Americans do not like to be under anyone. We resist authority. I mean, we rebelled against Britain in our founding. We don't like when our parents or teachers or bosses or the government tell us what to do. We insist on ruling our own personal universe, and it shouldn't surprise us at all that a culture that has issues with submission to authority on every level in general would have issues with submission in marriage. Well, in order to understand the design of marriage, we have to go back to the beginning to the book of Genesis. Uh, particularly uh, chapters 2 and 3, and we're just going to kind of glide through this. We don't find in Genesis 2 and 3 the gender-neutral ideas that are so popular today. The gender lines are not blurry. The man and woman each have distinct features uh, given to them by by the Lord. Uh, The man was created first, it says in Genesis 2 and I'll read it, Genesis 2, uh, verses 7 and 8, say, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Ah, that's awesome, isn't it? And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then a little further down in chapter 2, he says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, and to keep it. Uh, kind of giving the man a responsibility to take care of things. And then it says this, Genesis 2:18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then uh, I love, you know, this next part, Adam is naming all of the animals and Uh, By the way, there's an incredible Bob Dylan song about uh, Adam naming all the animals that you should definitely look up this afternoon if you've never heard it. It's a great song. Kids love that song. But it says this, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So you probably know the story. So the Lord, God puts Adam into a deep sleep, takes one of his ribs I mean, I don't know exactly, nobody understands this stuff fully. Uh, takes one of his ribs and uses it as raw material to create a woman. And the Lord brings the woman, uh, beautiful, right, to Adam. And Adam says this with a sense of joy. This, at last. He was kind of, I think, craving this. At last as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, take this in for a moment. I just want you to uh, really just use a little bit of your imagination. This is going way back into the garden, of course. But just, just think about Adam and Eve. Adam is viewing the woman as part of his own body coming out of him. I believe he cared for this woman the way he cared for his own body, which Paul talks about, actually, in Ephesians 5. There was no sin yet. Adam had no thought like, oh, this is great. You know, I can, I can boss her around. I can tell her what to do. I'm stronger than her physically, and I can dominate her. There was none of that. The overwhelming first impression was to care for her. And the woman being created second was being welcomed into the man's God-given purpose to help him. And she didn't think, hey, why was, why was he made first and, and I second? You know, why can't I be in charge? There was just none of that. With gladness, she came alongside the man to help him and all the Lord had purposed for them. She didn't feel inferior to the man She came under his covering of care, and the two enjoyed life in the garden blissfully without any tension. And their relationship was described like this, kind of a famous verse, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this speaks to to the freedom and intimacy they had together. They felt safe with one another. They lived in harmony and perfect agreement Adam didn't wish that he had the woman's role and Eve didn't wish that she had the man's role. Mutual love flowed as Adam sort of led the, the dance and Eve followed. They were enjoying the perfection of God's design. Now when you roll into chapter three, it gets pretty dim quickly, The glory of the garden departs as they uh, eat the forbidden fruit. We'll save those details for another sermon. But what I think is interesting to note is the curse that God speaks over Eve. Of course, he speaks a curse over Adam for listening to his wife, letting her lead him into sin when he should have led her to reconcile with the Lord. Um, God curses the serpent as well. But listen to what God says to Eve. I think it's interesting. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. What does that mean? The curse of God spoken over the man was all about thorns and thistles and the ground being tough uh, to work with. That man would have to, by the sweat of his face, eat bread. The curse was about. It's all about his responsibility uh, to work and and manage things. It was going to be, you know, a thousand times harder. But a very different thing is spoken over Eve. Pain and childbearing, which we understand clear enough. That is definitely a fact, and that prophecy came true. But then God says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. What God seems to be saying here is that the fallen nature of women will be marked by a desire to go contrary to the husband. Is a prophecy really about marital strife. The woman will be born with a nature that doesn't want to submit. But God says husbands will rule over you. What was God saying there? I don't think God was talking about husbands lovingly, Ruling as the head, not at all. He was prophesying that because of sin, men would use their physical strength sinfully to dominate women. This was a prophecy about marriages, and certainly it has come true because marital strife uh, has covered the planet and is a huge problem. Now, these interpretations I'm, I'm giving you in Genesis uh, 2 and 3 are kind of my interpretation. There's a lot of different theories and ideas of what these different things mean. I could be wrong and not be seeing the whole picture. I just want to say that. But I think Genesis 2 and 3 must be understood before even attempting to interpret Ephesians 5. Because listen, the vision of marriage in Ephesians that Paul is giving to us is really a return to the garden. It's not in any way a teaching to push down women and give men more power. It's bringing us back to the beautiful, perfect, original design of God. Now, let's explore this idea in Ephesians of wives submitting to their husbands. What what does this mean? What does this really mean? What does it look like played out? If we're going to be uh, Christians, we we just can't cut this verse, these verses out of the Bible, and we we don't want to dilute them or twist them. Uh, it's so easy because it's such a touchy subject in the culture. You know, we want to we want to kind of fit into that, but we, we we can't do that. We we don't want to mess with the Word of God. We just we really want to understand what the Lord uh, wants us to do. And if it's counterculture and people think we're old-fashioned, or whatever, who cares? You know. It's not the first thing that we believe about the Bible that the culture doesn't applaud or like. You know, there's many things. Uh, Christianity is counterculture. It it, it just is. And the the world is not going to love everything that we believe. But let's let's try to understand this. Sometimes it helps uh, to begin with what it doesn't mean. And I want to give you a few statements here. Submission. It, it doesn't mean wives have, have no say in decision making in the marriage. It doesn't mean that wives can't challenge their husbands. It doesn't mean that wives can't take the lead in various aspects of the family. It doesn't mean that the woman has to throw out her dreams and devote her whole life to f- helping her husband fulfill his. It doesn't mean the husband is a better leader. It doesn't mean that wives should be a doormat. certainly doesn't mean wives should put up with verbal or physical abuse. It doesn't mean wives must stay at home and focus on having babies and that they cannot work. Even Proverbs 31 blows that out of the water. It doesn't mean that she is not equal. And because Paul tells wives to submit and husbands to love, doesn't mean husbands shouldn't submit And wives shouldn't love. In the preceding verse, remember it says that John Michelson preached on last week, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, this word submission in American culture has a very negative connotation, and I think probably even amongst Christians. We associate it with uh, dictators who force submission or maybe we think of abusive relationships. But let's get to the essence and and, and then kind of focus the lens on what God means in calling wives to submit to husbands. I just thought I'd look up the definition of the word submission just in the dictionary. And I found this, the action or fact of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another person. Yikes, that sounds really harsh. And I thought about when I read that, I don't think I've ever submitted to anyone according to that definition, except for I thought of when I got held up in a gas station One time. I was working in the gas station and I got held up and I was totally submissive in that moment. I would do anything that this person wanted me to do. You know, I was just like, okay, yes, here's all the money. You can take all the candy or whatever. He was taking cigarettes. I was just like, because he had a weapon and I didn't. And that's kind of what we think about when we think about submission. But, you know, have we, do we submit to our parents like that? Do we submit to governing authorities? Do we submit to a coach, or a teacher, or an employer, or or a pastor? I hope not. To submit in the biblical sense means to come under the protection and care of, to trust, to move in the same direction as, to follow. The way Jesus, who is co-equal with the Father, submitted to the Father. It's a beautiful thing. One thing to note, kind of a side note, is that Scripture tells wives to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. But it is not exactly as. You have to understand that. Um, I mean, think about the church and how the church relates to Christ. I mean, we bow down before Christ. We worship him. We tremble before him. We, we, we tear our hearts open and repent before him. Uh, we fear the Lord, uh, right? We fear Christ in, in, in many ways. So it's not that. Um, you know, it's, it's a comparison. It's a simile. It's, a, it's not exactly as... The church relates to Christ. So we have to be careful not to take these things further than the writers of the Bible intended us to. Well, let me uh, just tell you a little bit about through the years, um, you know, my wife and I have done. Well, we've been married for 30 years uh, which is pretty exciting. We had our 30th anniversary May 5th of 2020. Um, but we have done a lot of premarital premarital counseling uh, for young couples th- through the years. And the question about what these verses about you know the husband being the head of the wife and wife submitting to the husband it just always comes up. It's always a thing. It's always like a like a nervous concern, Um, like how do we do this, like is this, I don't know, just a lot of questions about it, and I was, you know, just thinking, we never really fully know what to say, because, I mean, we try to give a little insight to it, but I think the way our marriage has worked is, um, we haven't really, it functions biblically, Um, I don't tell her, unless I'm joking around or something, that I'm the head of the house. Uh, sometimes if we're making a little tiny decision, I might joke about that, but I never, it's not, nec- I don't, I just lead. I just, I just lead, I try to take responsibility for the family, and she does a pretty good job at submitting. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> She's dying right now at home listening to this. No, she is amazing. My wife is totally amazing, and she's a wonderful example, actually, of a very, very strong-minded woman who allows her husband and helps her husband to lead the family, and I feel like we're a great team together, but still, the question, you know, even when we share this with couples, yeah, but what about decisions, you know, what if, what if one of you thinks you should do this thing, another one thing's the other thing. Like, what do, what do you do? What happens? You know, because I think the, the thought is that, well, if it's a, if it's a draw, then the husband kind of, well, I'm the head, and because I'm the head, this is what we're doing. You know, it's my, no, it's, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't play out like that in, in a good and a healthy marriage. I mean, we've made thousands of decisions together in the last 30 years like thousands, some really weighty decisions. And we, we definitely have different ideas at times about things, but what happens is it's, it's like a, you know, we're going back and forth, we're making decisions together, you know, we're both giving input, we're we're sh- this is our life together. Uh, so we're, it's not, I'm not making all the decisions and then I just tell her what we're doing. Like that would be, that wouldn't be love. Um, if at the end of the day, after much debating, we disagree about something because there's been—I I can't even think of an example—but there, there's been some times probably that we've haven't come to the perfect agreement about whatever decision we're going to make. But when that happens, we we either shelf it or we uh, we, we kind of find a, a compromise in the middle, or maybe you know maybe she just trusts me in the decision, or I just, you know what, let's do it your way, out of love, I lay down my, how I want to do it, and I do it the way she feels that it should be done, and I'm going to trust in, in her. Uh, you, usually, I think it, there's a, a bit of a default when that happens, that if it's more, an, a more important thing to me, then she'll kind of give it to me. If it's just something that's really dear to her, more important to her, I usually give it to her. I'm not even sure if we really thought all this through, but again, I think it just when love is operating—that uh, mutual submission and love for one another. It just don't worry about it. Like decisions will will be made. You know, you're not gonna—it's not gonna be a draw. You're not gonna. The husband isn't gonna force you. To, you know, this is what we're doing. No, it shouldn't be like that. That's not biblical. That's not the heart of God. Um, that's not how husbands should operate at all. Any way you cut it, a marriage flourishes only when there is mutual love and submission. Think of it as, uh, I love the verse, outdo one another with honor, right? It's just such a cool verse. Outdo one another. You know, I think that this, this almost spirit of outdoing one another is what makes marriages work. When I'm loving and serving her and she's loving and submitting to me and then I'm loving and serving and she's loving and caring and I'm protecting her and I'm uh, caring for her and loving her and she's doing it back and we're kind of, you know, it's like a kind of a competition almost, right? Not really, but it, you know, you're just really trying to outdo one another <sighs> as love covers over a multitude of sins. There's harmony uh, when, when a couple does that, it's beautiful. It, it flourishes. Um, it's often said, and I, I believe it, that when a husband is living a sacrificial life of love for his wife as the head of the house, the wife doesn't have a problem submitting and enjoys the security and safety under that covering. Um, it's, it's a good thing and a beautiful thing. Now, let me get a little bit more practical. Some might be thinking, yeah, but Pastor Scott, um, you're a leader. You're a pastor. You know, it works for you to lead your marriage because, you know, you, you have the gift of leadership. Um, what about marriages where the wife is a stronger personality, a stronger leader, and is all around just more competent? That's a really good question. It's a valid question. I don't think the roles should be reversed. It's still the design of God to let the husbands lead. But the wife is, if the wife is a better leader, she, she can help him lead. Um, it's funny, I was, we were thinking about, uh, my wife and I talking about this this week, we were thinking about uh, when the, the gir- our girls were in school, in elementary school, there was this principle uh, Mr. Roberts, who was just so, he was just so chill, you know, he was just so, like, nice, and he's just kind of a passive guy, and I, I don't think he was, like, really necessarily a great leader, <laughs> or a great visionary, or not that organized, but he was just real. everyone loved him, and then there was this uh, lady who was, I don't even know what her job, like, maybe she was the assistant to him, or something like that, uh, Mrs. Vitali. and man, she ran the school, she literally ran that she had 50 times the leadership gift that Mr. Roberts had but it was interesting how she it was always, she would always say Mr. Roberts well Mr. Roberts wants us to do this and and Mr. Roberts you know wants us to 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 do and Mr. Roberts has told us that this is what and so she was always kind of like you know flowing under his leadership beautifully and lifting him up even though really she probably suggested many of those things uh to be done to Mr. Rogers, and he was Or Mr. Robertson, he probably said, fine, that's good. That's a good idea. Um, So it was kind of an interesting relationship. But I think some marriages can be a little bit like that. Um, I believe even the most passive man can lead strong with the spirit's help. Now, if they're immature and lazy, they should become men first before getting married. And women really shouldn't marry men who are immature and unequipped to manage the family. Um, You know, even if the woman has a great leadership gift and she's like, you know, I can run things myself. No, you shouldn't marry someone who is unable to lead and doesn't have that maturity. Again, we're not talking about some special leadership gift that, you know, we have. Uh, we, we, should, we should be able to lead things, and man, as, even as Christians. We should be able to just manage things and lead things. We, we all manage our own lives, hopefully. Um, so we're all leading and managing our own, taking responsibility for our own lives. You know, so when we talk about adding one person or two or three, if it's a family, um, we, we know how to do it. It's just a matter, I think it's a matter of just being mature and taking responsibility and, and just doing it. I don't think there's any man who just doesn't have the gifting to be able to... No, I think we can all do it. It's just, do we want to? Well, husbands, I want to make this point, are not told anywhere in Scripture to see to it that their wives submit. They're not given permission to lord it over, to dominate or to use physical strength to force their wives to do anything The role of the husband is to love the wife as Christ loves the church. And that means, by the way, servant leadership. I think even when we think about these ideas, it just, we bristle a bit because, wow, the the man is the the leader of the wife. Yeah, but remember the idea of leadership that Jesus gave. Who's gonna be the greatest in the the kingdom of God? He was a servant of all. How did Jesus... um, serve the church? How did Jesus, like when he walked the earth, how did he serve the disciples? He took a towel and he washed their feet. That was leadership. And so it's always servant leadership. It's not this dominant, you know, I'm in charge, I'm the boss. No, it's laying down your life, protecting, nourishing, cherishing, and caring. That means giving up selfish selfish interests so that the husband can serve the wife. It means being kind and considerate, being a good listener, being totally committed and faithful to her. It means treasuring her more than all the other women on the earth put together, treating her like a queen, turning off the football and letting her watch a Hallmark movie. <laughs> Could be the other way around, but... It's still giving up your rights and loving is what the husbands should do. I've never met a wife that had an issue submitting to a husband like that, really. If the wife should be easy to lead, I would say to husbands, be easy to follow. I was, you know, talking with my wife a little bit about how when I uh, graduated from Bible school, I did an internship and did campus ministry in Boston uh, at this church, university church, and we were on different uh, campuses around the Boston area working for uh, a friend who is you know, my ment- really a mentor of mine, Nick Furtado. And I just was thinking about how it was such a joy to work under him. Th- there was never a, a sense of like, oh, wow. Why- how can I take his position? How can I be in power and be in charge? I found so much joy under him because there was just freedom. He just like empowered me. Like, you go, man. You've He just like let me dream and, and do stuff and try stuff and innovate. Like, I was absolutely free. I mean, I was still serving under his vision. There was, I felt safe. I felt secure. I felt protected. I felt guided. I felt just, I felt so much under him. There was never this sense of, I don't want to submit to him. It was a joy. And I'm, I'm thankful for that because it gives me a good understanding of what, you know, what submission in a healthy way can really look like. It wasn't a difficult thing. It was a joy. But my prayer for us is that we would trust the design of the good creator in this. The Lord knows what he's doing. He's a superior designer than us. He knows the way that things work best. Uh, So let's rest in his wisdom. And lastly, there's a lot at stake with this. If the church at large continues to disregard the God-given roles of husband and wife in exchange for the pseudo-enlightened philosophies of carnal culture. She will continue to experience marital strife and divorce. And these things have effects on children. They affect our testimony to the world. Um, but when a husband and a wife are living out the vision of God for each of their roles, I think the result is stunning. And hopefully you've seen, I know it's, it's kind of hard to find, but hopefully you've seen examples of it. Um, there is happiness. It's kind of the, the byproduct of functioning as husbands and wives in the way that the Lord designed the byproduct is joy and is fulfillment, and, and the marriage just uh, works. Um, it's a taste of life in the Garden of Eden, and it points to Jesus. So yeah, there's my teaching on it. I, maybe you, uh, I hope you guys got something out of this. I don't always ask for this, but I welcome any... Feedback this week, if you want to email me, uh, just your thoughts, because this is a massive subject, and I hope I didn't say anything that was insensitive at all toward to, to women or men or any, anything. I'm not trying to do that. I'm really just trying to be have integrity with with the scriptures and with the text and what what the Lord wants. But uh, I just welcome thoughts, your ideas, or, or maybe how this is working in your life. Um, Yeah, because we're a community. I don't have all the answers on these things, but uh, I have seen it work in my own marriage. We've been married for 30 years, and we're stronger than ever. I mean, we we still get in little debates and get in arguments once in a while, but we're rock solid and deeply entwined with each other, and I think we have a, a healthy marriage. I'm happy in our marriage, I, I, I think God has just worked with us, you know, through the years. And so I'm kind of partly just sharing how, how we've done it and it's worked and the blessing of the Lord is, is on it. So, uh, I think I just say that to say, just nestle in to the Lord's design and, uh, just do it the way he wants it to be done. And for those who aren't married, um, this is good stuff to tuck away because uh, this is this is part of the problem. Is so many people get married without understanding what marriage really is, or understanding the purpose of God in marriage, or the roles of husbands and wives in marriage. So if you go into it without understanding all of this, it just it it can fall apart very quickly. It can be terrible. And there can be so much strife. So uh, if you're not married, just you know take notes and um, just store it up and just kind of understand the ways of the Lord. Thanks for listening.